questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. All of us today dwell in uncertain places, realities in which thoughts make things happen. ESP is provable by the scientific methods once used to debunk it. UFOs are mainstream, and magic no longer requires rite and ritual, but is as near as your own mind. Tonight's special guest is a leading voice of esotericism and the occult. We will explore topics that evoke widespread misunderstanding, including the real history of secret societies, the wisdom of the satanic, the relevance of Gnosticism, and the slender but authentic connection between today's spiritual culture and antiquity, including in areas of hermeticism, deity worship, out-of-body experience, and magic. He demonstrates the occult roots of wide-ranging facets of modern culture, including abstract art, mind-body healing, self-help, and breakthrough scientific fields such as quantum physics and neuroplasticity. He looks at the influence of the founding lights of modern occultism, including mystic Neville Goddard, occult scholar Manly B. Hall, and surrealist filmmaker David Lynch, and provides a magnificent takedown of famous debunkers and pseudo-skeptics such as the amazing Randy. He explores magical practices including anarchic magic, mind metaphysics, the law of attraction, and the history of Ouija boards, and questions time-honored spiritual values like forgiveness. He will also share with us what it is like to be blacklisted. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Mitch Horowitz is a Penn Award-winning historian and widely known voice of esoteric ideas with bylines in the New York Times, Time, Politico, and the Wall Street Journal. He is the author of many books, including Occult America, One Simple Idea, Daydream Believer, and the Miracle Club. The Chinese government has censored his work. The new book is titled Uncertain Places, Essays on Occult and Outsider Experiences. His Twitter account is at Mitch Horowitz and his Instagram at Mitch Horowitz 23. And directly from the city that never sleeps, New York City, Mitch Horowitz is back with us on Veritas. Hello, Mitch, and welcome back. Uh, I'm the resident who never sleeps. Good to be here, Mel. <laughs> Likewise. Before we begin, I have to ask you this. Why are you censored in China, Mitch? Well, I wrote a book in 2014 called One Simple Idea, and it is a history of the positive thinking movement. And it was licensed uh, for translation into Mandarin by a Chinese publisher based in Shanghai. And I had a lot of really wonderful Skype sessions with the translator. We had a terrific back and forth. She was making a really earnest effort to get a handle on certain American metaphysical concepts, religious concepts, which are very unknown within a culture that is uh, considered officially atheistic, at least according to the policy of the Communist Party. And everything was great. And then at the end of the process, the publisher, as is usual, had to submit the book to basically the Chinese government office of censorship for approval. And they cut 38 percent of it. Every reference to a metaphysical concept, a spiritual concept was X'd out of the book. Those things are considered verboten uh, by the party. And I've never been published in China since, although I have been published, I'm happy to say, in Taiwan and Korea. But in China, my work is considered outside the parameters of permissible thought. Does it have anything to do with the Falun Gong and spirituality? And maybe they put a connection there? Not necessarily. There, Even within uh, movies, for example, there are very strict parameters on what you can explore. Anything that deals with the extra physical is considered to be in contradiction 
to the materialist outlook of the Communist Party, which sees uh, human events as a result of economic and social forces, uh, does not uh, believe that uh, teaching about, exploring, uh, using language that's connected to spirituality or religions, even if it's non-affiliated, is acceptable. And hence, they came down on the book. God is the state. God is your leader. Well, same as North Korea, I believe. But why do you, let me just get into the, the topic at hand here. Why do you think met- metaphysics and modernist thought have never fully gotten along? It's a good segue. The, the basic premise of modernist thought is that there exists unknown but detectable antecedents behind events. So, for example, in matters of psychology, this might be hidden trauma or sexual repression, apropos of the work of Freud. In economics, this might be unseen economic uh, clashes or forces in terms of Marx. In the sciences, Louis Pasteur, it's germs. Einstein, it's relativity. Uh, psychology, it's self-image with reference to William James. And Darwin, it's a orderly biologic evolution of life and so on and so forth. And to a very great extent, the shapers, the movers and shakers of modernist philosophy, especially in the 19th century, tended to regard religion as something that kept the veil over our eyes. But in fact, I think that we can search for first causes in the extra-physical, and we almost have to, given the last 80 or 90 years of data that's come out of quantum mechanics, for example, not to mention uh, the study of neuroplasticity, which demonstrates how uh, what we call thoughts actually alter our brain matter, uh, placebo studies, academic psychical research, and so on and so forth. All the founders of world-class science in the 20th century, that is to say the founders of quantum mechanics, were what might be called philosophical idealists. They believed in the perceptual nature of reality. So there's no necessary clash between modernist philosophy and spirituality, but because of the primacy of materialist philosophy, which holds that matter creates itself and that all of life results from chemical or cognitive processes, that thought is nothing but a simple epiphenomenon of the brain, uh, the spiritual has remained something outside the fold of the modernist worldview. But that's just a construct, and it's not really necessary. And part of the reason I assembled the essays in uncertain places was to try to redress that situation. You know, I've heard that neuroplasticity is being used mostly in response to learning or, you know, experiences or or following the injury. But, you know, folks, it's the ability of the brain to form and reorganize synaptic connections. And I don't know if you've heard this, but this cup, this uh, two young scientists in, in Silicon Valley, I believe they've been working on this technology where they, for example, they get a, a, a pianist, a virtuoso, a musician, and they pluck, you know, the electrodes in their head and they record the signatures. And then they bring somebody who says he wants to play the piano. They plug it in, they transfer, and it's like they, they, it's not like they're transferring consciousness. They're transferring something where the new person learns the piano much faster. A pilot, a, a, a race car driver. Have you heard that? I have not heard about that, but it's it's not surprising because neuroplasticity, relatively speaking, is a, a young field. It's maybe a generation old, and it has been used to treat people suffering from addictions, people experiencing PTSD, people experiencing OCD who are suffering with repeat ritualistic behaviors. And in short, what researchers have found is that if you can redirect your thoughts among more desirable lines and do this in a sustained way, which probably also enjoys engaging in some kind of Uh, recreational or enjoyable or desirable activity to help you redirect your thoughts. In time, the neural pathways through which electrical impulses travel in your brain actually alter. And the gray matter of the brain is altered at the cellular level from what we call thought, which we don't really have a very good definition of because the materialist definition of thought, again, holds that it's, it's an epiphenomenon of the brain. It's like bubbles in a carbonated 
glass of water. And when the water is gone, the bubbles are gone. But in this case, we find the use of a kind of directed mental effort actually has a biologic effect at the brain level. The founder of the field, or one of the key founders, Jeffrey M. Schwartz, who's a research psychiatrist at UCLA, describes it quite literally as mind over matter. The implications are stunning. Uh, the data is not controversial. The data is widely accepted. But the precipice that we have yet to cross is one of the implications. Do you think substances like magic mushrooms, psilocybin, will assist with this in the future? We seem to see this happening just like uh, uh, marijuana uh, and, and, you know, uh, cannabis is being accepted more widely throughout the nation. Do you think this might be opening up for this? I, I think it's a very rich area of experiment. I think it's very important. We need accelerants. You know, we, we, we live under terrible stressors. Perhaps every generation has. But... There is an eagerness on the part of the public. There's an eagerness on the part of the individuals, certainly something I feel myself, to find accelerants. And I think there's research that demonstrates that when dealing with addiction, when dealing with PTSD, we have accelerants. Uh, entheogenic or psychedelic substances may be one of those. Cannabis may be one of those. Uh, certain forms of meditation, certainly transcendental meditation is one of those. So I think the search for accelerants is really important in our time. Well, I might say we're products of our environment and our experiences is what shape us. What happened to you in Belize about 20 years ago? Oh, I visited the nation of Belize twice. I really love Belize. It's, uh, of course, a uh, Latin American nation on the Pacific. Beautiful, beautiful country. Uh, English is, is the most widely spoken language there, although Spanish is, of course, also spoken. And I was in Belize uh, some years ago, and um, uh, my travel companion and I were headed up to an eco-resort way up in the highlands. And we were bouncing on this unpaved dirt road, stretching up a mountain. And the cab driver began to say to us, uh, as soon as he dropped us off at this jungle lodge that we were visiting, he was going to just make a sharp turn right out of there and be gone. And I said, why? What's the rush? And he said, well, there are these little men, Aleutians, who occupy the hills. You know, in Ireland, they might call them leprechauns. Somewhere else, they might call them fairies. There's a different term in uh, the nations of West and Central Africa. And I thought he was just trying to play scare the tourist. Um, the next day, we were canoeing down this uh, very quiet, snaking river that was going through, um, passing between these ravines. It was a narrow river. And I began to say how I didn't like that cabbie trying to scare us yesterday. And I started talking about this. And then suddenly in the dead quiet from out of nowhere, this boulder came crashing down the hill and landed uh, in the water, maybe about 12 feet in front of us. And uh, one of the tenets of belief is that if you talk about the Aleutians or the little people, they come around and they could do mischief. And so I thought to myself, well, I better button my lip. I'm, uh, I'm a guest here. <laughs> I need to respect local custom and outlook. And a lot of people in the nation Uh, very forthright, very together, very canny, you know, spoke to me and shared stories about these little men who were said to occupy the hills. And I got interested in it because every culture throughout human history, including to the present day, from Polynesia to Siberia, literally, has these uh, tenets of folklore. And I believe in treading very gently around folklore. Is it in Belize or somewhere else that you, you mentioned, they call them the others to avoid any any conflict with them. Say again, please. I lost you there. Yes. Uh, I believe you said something. I'm not sure if it was in Belize or somewhere else where you have to call them the others, not oh, with the Oh, yeah. That's, that's in Ireland. They refer to people won't walk around using words like fairies or leprechauns very often, at least the people with traditional beliefs. The people with traditional beliefs refer to the other crowd. That's their euphemism, the other crowd, because the feeling is, again, that if you talk about them, They'll come around and do mischief. And a friend of mine, a folklorist named Eddie Lenihan, actually succeeded in getting a planned highway rerouted in County Clare because the construction plans required the highway to bulldoze 
what was known as a fairy bush, which is supposed to be a domain of the other crowd or the little people. And Eddie felt that this would result in traffic accidents or other tragedies or mishaps. And uh, there were enough people who agreed with him so that local authorities did agree to route the highway around the fairy bush. And it still stands. <laughs> That's interesting. Has science ever, because I know we live in a materialist world where, and we'll discuss this later, we need to see things on radar. We need to see tangible evidence. But when it comes to fairies, when it comes to, to all these creatures, has science ever studied this at all? That's a good question. I, I, I would say probably not. There's lots of testimony, and I, I take testimony very seriously. Uh, a critic would say I'm talking about anecdote, but the difference between anecdote and testimony is usually a person's belief system. And when you amass testimony over many, many years, it does become a record. We use testimony all the time. Uh, we use it in medicine. We use it in therapy. There are drugs, the efficacy of which we don't really fully understand, sometimes psychopharmacological drugs, sometimes drugs that abet pain resistance. And we use the testimony of the patient to decide whether the treatment is effective. So I take testimony very seriously um, in matters of uh, of all walks of life. Mitch, when I started this program almost 15 years ago, when the topic of UFOs and extraterrestrials was still ridiculed, but there are some of us who knew it was only a matter of time before this topic was taken, it was going to be taken seriously. In 2019, you attended an event at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City, a venue not considered, you know, a, a place for occult passions. <laughs> It hosted a panel on UFOs and extraterrestrials. One of the participants was our friend, philosopher and historian, Dr. Diana Pasolka. And at one point, the curator asked you, at, one point, at what point do you think it is going to become intellectually embarrassing within our culture not to make seriously the question of, the, of UFOs? Mitch, I'm interested yeah. in your answer and also the motivation for such an event to have taken place at such a non-traditional venue for the topic being discussed. Well, it was interesting. The curator and the organizer of that event uh, is a man named Troy Therian. And uh, Troy is no longer with the Guggenheim, but he had curated a hugely successful and popular exhibit there that featured the paintings of Hilma Afklimpt, who was a theosophist and was inspired by the occult cosmology of Madame H.P. Blavatsky, the founder of that movement, the co-founder of that movement in the late 19th century. And that probably gave Troy, who's a brilliant curator, some degree of clout within the institution. It was a huge uh, critical and public success. And he assembled a panel, as you referenced, uh, in late summer of 2019 to discuss the UFO question. And He approached me afterwards and he asked the question that you just uh, repeated. When do you think it's going to become intellectually embarrassing in our culture not to take the UFO thesis seriously? And I, I stopped and I thought for a moment and I said, you know, honestly, right now, right now, with uh, articles uh, featuring uh, high-def uh, video from Navy cockpits, uh, radar images that appeared in, starting in 2017 in the New York Times uh, by Leslie Cooper, Ralph Blumenthal, and Helene Cooper. Um, and these things continuing, these articles continuing uh, for a couple years, and uh, the panel being held at the Guggenheim to a standing room only crowd. You should have seen the auditorium. I mean, you couldn't pack another soul in there without the fire marshal visiting. And I realized that we had hit a point where the UFO question has gone mainstream. No serious person in our culture can just wave this stuff off as oh, swamp gas, little green men, you're imagining things, you're drinking, you're delusional. You know, clearly there's some kind of engineered phenomena that we're unable to understand. And this question is, it, it, it's not only mainstream at this point, but it's going like a freight train. The news, I believe, is going to keep coming uh, to the extent that the past prophecies the future, we're going to see a continued unfoldment of this question, continued evidence, and obviously continued debate. But I couldn't have imagined mm, five years ago the extent to which this would go mainstream. I don't think there's any anyone of any real serious <clears throat> intellectual gravity in our culture, any journalist of really serious credentials who would feel at ease 
just dismissing this as a bunch of fairy dust and nonsense. Uh, the culture has changed. It certainly has. I have friends who many years ago would laugh at the fact that I study this subject. And even last week, some of them are sending me pictures like, what do you think? Do you think this is true? And I'm thinking, really, now you're sending that to me for serious consideration? But Mitch, we've had many luminaries on this program. Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher uh, from Berkeley's Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Dr. Cloud Swanson from MIT and author of The Science of the Paranormal. They have both passed away and left a great legacy for newcomers to continue. But these were trained scientists who delved into this, may I say, forbidden topic. We discussed the Princeton eggs, and you know, I believe the Princeton lab it was closed not too long ago. Mm-hmm. What and why do you think has pushed most physical and ESP-related, uh, no, psychical, I'm sorry, and ESP-related research off the college campuses? Well, there since the 1970s, since the early 1970s, there has risen uh, in the U.S. primarily a professional skeptic Uh, apparatus. And their sole mission, their sole dedication is to discredit parapsychology, discredit the study of events, testimony, uh, evidence for things that are not commonly observed. And they've been very successful. They've, they've, uh, they're good at sound bites. They're, they're good at, at, at spiking reference sources like Wikipedia. Uh, They're good at employing language that seeks to discredit uh, the researcher, him or herself. They use a lot of superlatives and hyperbole, and it resonates. And they've been, unfortunately, in my view, they've been very successful. And hence, uh, we used to have uh, ESP labs at universities like Duke and Princeton. There were studies going on at Harvard and Cornell. And to a great extent on college campuses, uh, but not entirely, uh, that, that's been curtailed because it's very hard for these researchers to get funding, even though the experiments themselves are, are really inexpensive. They're peanuts compared to what gets, what gets spent in psychology, the social sciences, and so forth. And they also um, go after individuals, and they, they seek to smear and, and, and discredit the reputations of individual clinicians and researchers who are trying to undertake this work. So um, I think we've probably lost about a generation of progress in the academic study of ESP uh, with some wonderful, wonderful exceptions, uh, including experiments that now go back about 10 years at Cornell into precognition or retrocausality, which is one of the most exciting vistas of study to emerge from the field recently, but it has stymied the research and uh, it's a real tragedy for our culture. I can't emphasize enough how relatively inexpensive this research is, how careful and meticulous its academic um, followers, clinicians, pursuers are. They're well aware of the damage that can be done to their reputation. They're well aware of the problems of fraud and they've elevated their standards very high, partly to overcome some of the natural resistance involved. And it's very tough for these people to raise money. And I'd like to see that situation turn around. I can think of the Monroe Institute, the Institute of Noetic Sciences and and, and others. And I know, you know, Dr. Dean Radin, what keeps these entities alive these days? Well, uh, these entities have to do their own private fundraising. And anybody who's written grant proposals knows that writing a grant proposal is a career in and of itself. And it's extraordinary to me the clinicians who have soldiered on in this environment because they have to raise money privately. They have to do their research, obviously. They have to write up their research, subject it to peer review. A lot of these papers that are produced are reproduced in mainstream social science or psychological journals, subjected to intense scrutiny, partly because of the subject matter. And that's fine. That's as it ought to be. Um, and sometimes they also have to hold down their day, their day jobs. They might hold uh, academic positions or uh, clinical positions in other labs, and they're doing all this at once, and they're managing 
to make it work. They're some of the most stalwart uh, clinical researchers that are out there today. I'm thinking of uh, Dr. David Jacobs, Dr. Leah Sprinkle, who recently passed away, who deal with the abduction phenomena and, and the UFOs. These are serious researchers, one in, in UPenn. I forgot where Dr. Leah Sprinkle used to be a professor at, but uh, they used to take time out of the the professorship to deal with this. And yeah. at least Dr. Leo Sprinkle, he was sanctioned by the university. He was told to stop when he was doing this, helping people from all over the world. What do you think, academia, what is the stand today? Are they pro looking outside the spectrum or are they just want to stay mainstream? It really depends field by field. There's uh, oddly enough, there's more sympathy in medicine and the heart sciences uh, for ESP research for parapsychology uh, than there is in the social sciences. The social sciences, to a very great extent, has gotten into a kind of defensive cultural crouch where they've aligned themselves. And I'm speaking generally, of course, there are exceptions to this. But the field academically has aligned itself to the uh, materialist uh, outlook, feels challenged by anything that's considered transpersonal, extra-physical, parapsychological. Uh, you actually find greater sympathy among physicists and um, medical professionals uh, than you do within the social sciences. But that's frequently the departmental affiliation that people have who want to study this material because parapsychology has for many years been seen as a, a branch of psychology. It's the uh, part of the root of its term. And um, there's a lot of um, intellectual rejectionism uh, around the topic, and that makes it all the more difficult on campuses. Well, I think parapsychology is still a very, very popular when you go, well, if you go to physical bookstores, if they're still around, and they have large sections of parapsychology, and you see that in sales and so on. So the the hunger for this kind of, uh, if we can call it knowledge, is out there. But you mentioned, you know, social media that's being used to ridicule, to shun a lot of these people who are out there trying to research uh, Something comes to mind as somebody passed away recently, uh, the amazing Randy, mm -hmm. amazing Randy. I believe you uh, did a, a magnificent takedown of amazing, the amazing Randy. He was the co-founder of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Can you tell us more? Yeah, there's a piece uh, collected in uncertain places called The Man Who Destroyed Skepticism, which is a, a piece that I wrote as a kind of a counter obituary to eulogies that were being uh, written for uh, Randy when he passed away a little over two years ago. And I was extremely critical in the piece. Uh, I don't I, I'm not someone who wants to write so-called takedown pieces. I'm not someone who gets a charge out of challenging people's reputations, but I felt that James was responsible for a lot of very cheapened pseudo-skepticism that has swept through our culture and authentically misinformed people. For example, uh, when James was living, he produced a, uh, a, a te teacher's guide, a guide for grade school teachers to teach children, uh, school kids, grade school kids about ESP if they had questions. And it's riddled with unreferenced inaccuracies, one of which uh, stated that the pioneer of ESP studies in America, J.B. Ryan, didn't count null sets, didn't count negative sets. Not only is that outright false, but in fact, in the early 1930s, when J.B. opened the uh, parapsychology lab at Duke University, he not only instituted a practice of reporting all data, uh, of leaving nothing tucked away in the file drawer, so to speak, but at that time, It was fairly common practice in the social sciences in this country not to report negative sets, maybe under the spurious justification that, well, something must have been wrong with the methodology. And, and, and it was an unethical and problematic practice, which JB reversed for the entire field. He led the way for the social sciences in general to get away from the practice of withholding negative sets. And uh, in fact, in 1940, JB and his colleagues at Duke performed the first meta-analysis of statistically based ESP studies and analyzed every single set of legit studies that they could lay their hands on, including unpublished studies. 
And the term meta-analysis didn't even exist until 1976, and JB led the field in that direction as well. After decades in the media, uh, James knew this. James knew this. And he directly misrepresented JB's work in this teacher's guide without sourcing. This is the state of so-called skepticism. Uh, These practices have come to run riot across that field as a professional expression pursuit. And... I think he was a terrible influence on our culture. Um, I wrote the piece with a heavy heart because I'm aware that we all have friends, loved ones, family ties, and I have no interest in casting aspersion on anybody personally. But insofar as he was a public figure, he did a true disservice to intellectual inquiry, which is why the piece was so critical. I'm looking at a lawsuit here from 1995, I believe, Uri Geller versus James Randi, you probably heard about that lawsuit back then, didn't you? Yeah, well, those two, you know, they feuded for years and years and years, and uh, I I never really looked into the particulars of it. Um, I was, personally speaking, more concerned with the manner in which James um, misrepresented uh, studies, research, misinformed school teachers, and smeared the reputations of very legitimate, often private researchers who were just doing their best to Uh, raise money and do their work in an ethical atmosphere. Do you think he was just trying to debunk regardless? Do you think deep inside maybe he did believe, but he had been at this for so long that he needed to keep his skeptic persona? Well, it's an interesting question. I noticed that these debates really are emotionally charged. They're debates of sentiment uh, rather than of statistics. Uh, rather than of scientific methodology. And that happens with most of our debates. Uh, this has poisoned most of our policy discussions. It, it's, it's certainly poisoned the waters of public discussion around parapsychology. There's a very strong team mentality, a very strong partisan mentality. It's all emotional. And I must say, I, I, I debate with skeptics. I, I believe that there should be a robust skeptical review of this material, but it's very difficult to find people to debate with on a level worthy of the name because the emotions run so wild that um, James and other professional skeptics would just soon flip over the chessboard, then actually you see through the study, see through the inquiry. Um, I've often said that sometimes when dealing with such people, I hit my limits of understanding human nature. You know, we could all engage in armchair psychoanalysis about why people do what they do, why we resist uh, uh, rational information, which is something that the skeptics feel is their sword and shield. You know, they feel they're the ones defending rationality, and yet they not infrequently use duplicitous means to do so. This is on display on Wikipedia, for example. Wikipedia. Uh, is in some respects a wonderful information resource, but in areas of parapsychology, coteries of skeptics have figured out how to uh, spike the punch bowl, so to speak, and they go on Wikipedia and make claims, sometimes sourced to um, more or less one publishing house in Buffalo, New York called Prometheus Books, and um, uh, probably a plurality of their sources are are. Um, reference to Prometheus Publications, which is a highly partisan, professionally skeptical aligned uh, publishing company. So it's like just referencing yourself in your own paper, basically. And they spike these pages. And it's very hard for the public to get reliable information. And that includes journalists who are on a deadline, who are doing a Google search into ESP research. And in all likelihood, the first five results that are going to come up, which is usually all anybody looks at, are um, a partisan-baked, skeptically skewed results. I use the term skeptic generously. Uh, In some cases, the term pseudo-skeptic is more appropriate. I think there should be balance. There should be a filter to get rid of the charlatans, but some make it their goal to become professional debunkers. What's your take on Michael Shermer? Michael is a talented intellectual pugilist, but he has spread himself too thin, and his interests spread so far and wide uh, in the direction of anything that he thinks reeks of pseudoscience, a term that through overuse has almost lost all meaning, that I think at times he too gets into a similar position to the one James was in, 
where he's debunking almost for the purpose of emotion and team sentiment rather than really exploring. And uh, I respect Michael, and I think he could do better. I think the term pseudoscience almost like conspiracy theorist after JFK's assassination. That was the, 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 the term that was coined for anybody that questioned that. But pseudoscience is the derogatory name for anybody who wants to look outside the spectrum. Yes, and, and it's problematic. Look, we lose important terms in our culture all the time because of overuse. You know, people will throw around a word like cult, for example, which colloquially in our usage today in the 21st century means an abusive, isolating, belief-based organization. A cult is not something that I or another person finds weird. You know, we, we have a w words for that. And we have to be careful in throwing these labels around in polemical ways. It does injustice to the language, and we, we lose them when, in certain cases, they, they, they might be warranted. Let's, go about, let's talk about the occult. I have to say I'm seeing signs of what you call a third wave Occult revival, a la, a la Madame Blavatsky from the late 19th century. Are you seeing that? And what is causing the resurgence? You know, it's interesting. I used to resist speaking of there being any kind of an occult revival in our time or paradigm shift, because frankly, I just didn't see signs of it. Interest in the occult or the extra physical has been an evergreen on the Western scene for centuries. And there was a big revival in the late 19th century, as you were referencing in connection with the work of Madame Blavatsky and Eliphas Levi and some other figures. There was another revival in the late 60s, fueled by the Woodstock generation, where interest in Eastern spirituality and an interest in, in, in experimenting with alternative forms of living uh, opened people up to various occult and esoteric ideas. Despite the advent of technology, digital technology, and the way that it's made these things accessible, uh, maybe the pipes got bigger, the pipes got broader, but I didn't see any real revival. I do think there's a kind of third wave revival underway right now, and it's because of the mainstreaming of the UFO question in large measure. There are other factors as well, including experiment, new experimentation with psychedelics, as you were referencing earlier. But the mainstreaming of the UFO question has been a biggie because that tends to poke holes in the straight story of our just existing in this predictably clockwork box of Newtonian mechanics. The popularization of ideas and theories emerging from quantum mechanics has also been opening people up to questions of the perceptual basis of reality. And this has been converging, I think. These conversations have been converging. There is a, a lively and interesting debate over whether UFO phenomena might be related to extra dimensionality, interdimensionality, um, events crossing into our horizon that emerge from different intersections of time, which at first sounds like a very far out idea, but in fact, it's an idea that's been with us since the 1930s, uh, apropos of research into, into quantum mechanics and the manner in which particles, although not just particles, sometimes larger macro objects as well, behave in surreal ways, behave in a pattern that's sometimes called a wave state or exists in a state of infinitude until a measurement is taken and only then does a particle localize. And a great many physicists, including Erwin Schrodinger and um, Hugh Everett, who pioneered what's called the many worlds theory, have reasoned that because matter, at least on the atomic scale, is in a state of flux, a state of infinitude until a measurement localizes it, it stands to reason that there's potential events and actual events playing out all around us constantly at once. And when you start to apply that to the UFO question, it's very interesting. Theorists have come up with what is known as string theory, uh, which postulates that all, everything that is, exists along these undulating bands of strings. So something that's happening 
in another dimension or another intersection of time that we don't witness might be affecting things that go on within our own event horizon, so to speak. And these discussions are very much alive within physics, which may be a reason why, as I was alluding earlier, you find greater sympathy for parapsychology or ESP studies within the hard sciences than you do sometimes within the social sciences. And listen, we've known since the age of Einstein that that so-called space-time bends. Time itself, linear time, is not an absolute. It's, it's conceptual. Uh, time bends in conditions of extreme velocity. It bends in conditions of extreme gravity. In our own era, astronauts in our own era, although they're moving nowhere near the velocity of light speed, demonstrate minute reductions in the aging process. So time itself is not what we think it is. Um, dimensionality itself is not what we think it is. Matter doesn't behave according to the rules it's supposed to. The mind and cognition doesn't behave according to the rules it's supposed to. Not only in ESP research, but as we were talking about earlier in neuroplasticity. So all this stuff converging together suggests to me a new level of interest, engagement, uh, in the extra physical. Hence, I think it is fair to say that there is a shift going on. I think it's very real. I think we're living through it right now. You mentioned NASA and the fact that, of course, we haven't conquered speed of light, but I wonder if NASA has people, maybe they're not disclosing this, but looking at certain places around the world, ley lines, uh, you know, Peru comes to mind, Iraq comes to mind, other places that have certain attributes that some people might call a portal or a gateway where you can actually go through it at a certain, if a certain atmospheric condition is taking place to move from one point A to point B instantaneously. I wonder if they're looking into that and they're not telling us. Well, it's interesting with regard to questions of disclosure, the UFO movement has a very uneasy relationship with the government, NASA, the DOD and so forth. Because there have been efforts at cover-ups in the past, or there have been efforts to smear people who are interested in studying UFOs, and there are various reasons for this, and we know some of this factually, thanks to FOIA requests, whistleblowers, other things. It's probably part of the reason why these Navy cockpit videos emerged above ground in, in 2017. And it's important to remember, and this was actually pointed out by the Stanford immunologist Gary Nolan uh, a few weeks ago, I spoke at a uh, UFO-themed conference with Gary here in New York City, and he's done a lot to study the UFO thesis, and he made the point to the audience, and I think it's really important to remember that there are people who want to squelch disclosure, there are also whistleblowers, there are people who have motives for as many reasons as we have people, and uh the, the the people who are passionately interested in UFO disclosure can't get into a constant defensive crouch where everything the government does or everything the government says is seen as having some ulterior motive or seen as some sort of a cover-up or seen as uh, a, a distracting excuse for something else. Sometimes, probably, that goes on. And we know historically it has gone on. And sometimes there are earnest whistleblowers just as we have in media, just as we have in finance, just as we have in government, just as we have, you know, who reveal problems at uh, social media companies who are ignoring uh, their own evidence of um, abuses that are going on online or dangers that are present online, sometimes in a very real concrete way, like flash mobs that are being organized against Muslims in India, which which for a while was playing out on Facebook itself, and Facebook had the data, and we know this thanks to whistleblowers. So my point is, you know, there's 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 people who favor squelching information. There's people who favor whistleblowing and shining daylight on information everywhere, in every agency, every business, every walk of life. It's a tension. We have to live with that tension. We have to try to cultivate. Uh, the best transparency we can and not be constantly responding from only one place, one perspective, one point of view. Otherwise, speaking of UFOs, the owner of an Area 51 website, I believe the website is area51resort.com, which has been wiped from the internet, was uh, searched, uh, a raided, no knock raid by the FBI a few days ago, and all his computers and mobile devices were confiscated. 
Why do you think that this is becoming so mainstream now where the media is talking about it all the time, unlike what we used to see 10 years ago? It's funny. I have not heard that story. I made an effort to visit Area 51, um, <laughs> an unsuccessful effort, <laughs> about 18 months ago. Um, anybody who's driven up the so-called UFO highway and tried to yes. traverse the dirt road leading to Area 51 gets turned around in a big, big hurry. And that happened to me. There were a couple of guys behind sunglasses in an SUV who uh, uh, were less friendly than what I encounter at the Department of Motor Vehicle. And we turned <laughs> around rather quickly. Um, so I, I don't I'm not familiar with the events that, that, that you were just referencing. But listen, the the, the public in all these areas, parapsychology, ESP, UFOs, there's a widespread conviction among the public, people of all backgrounds, political outlooks, that there's something real there. There's something real there. And because the public believes something is not an adequate measure of truth, I can't emphasize that strongly enough. But the fact is, we are supposed to be living in a society with some degree of uh, transparency and, and, and the free flow of information. And if people feel, by and large, that this information is not being adequately shared, that is a legitimate public issue. And that's part of what fuels the coverage. And by the way, I misspoke. The actual website is dreamlandresort.com. I know it was shut down temporarily, but it's now up again. But Mitch, mm -hmm. I think you mentioned this in your book. This is relevant, and at least in the United States, it is. Other countries may be more open-minded. But here we are. We're more materialist. We want to see UFOs on radar. We want to see for ourselves. We want to touch. We want to, you know, we want tangible evidence. But if we're truly, if we are to rely on science, doesn't science tell us that our visual spectrum is limited and we can't see or hear beyond it? Infrared, ultraviolet, infra and ultrasound. And I bring this up because I recently heard a previous guest talk about an experience his father had as a helicopter gunner in Vietnam. At the beginning of that war, the United States military had infrared goggles, unlike the ones we have today, which are green. And at one point, they were actually red. And he said his father and others reported seeing strange creatures, and they were actually shooting them. They became so upset about what they were seeing, if I remember correctly, that the military recalled the goggles and updated them to the green we now have. Have you heard of this story? I have not, but... It's a, you're raising a lot of important issues. Uh, what's viewed with the naked eye can, of course, be deceptive. And uh, as five sensory beings, we have limitations. Um, the, 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 the source of the reportage is important. Is it a trained pilot? Is it a, a trained infantryman? Is it somebody who uh, understands the manner in which aerial objects are supposed to behave, you know, that, that certainly raises the stakes of the reported phenomena. Um, do we have some sort of lasting record? Do we have high def video? Do we have radar? If you marry that to testimony, that raises the stakes. Where there are problems, those problems need to be sorted out. Where there are errors, those errors need to be sorted out, which again is why I authentically want there to be a good skeptical apparatus. I want the same thing in the ESP field. Are there problems with fraud? Are there problems with um, some kind of uh, researcher bias or you know something of that nature? Are we able to meta-analyze these results, match them up with other results, or match them up with historical accounts for that matter? So there's a lot of hard work that needs to be done, and none of us can afford in the pursuit of questions that go beyond common observation to permit our enthusiasms to get the best of us. And we've all got them. And we're never going to be rid of enthusiasms or confirmation bias, which is just a social science term for prejudice, gets thrown around a lot. The people who frequently use it don't apply it very much back to themselves because we all have a position from which we're arguing. So, the evidence should be held to a very, very high standard. Uh, testimony matters. But once that testimony is submitted, then the who, what, why, when, and where, and is there supporting evidence, of course, needs to be um, married to it. I bet our military, I mean, what is it that they, that they used to say that they're ahead of us 50 years. If technology doubles every year and a half, I believe, every 18 months, 
Imagine what they have now. If in the 1950s they had missiles that could track a, a UFO the size of an aircraft carrier, and this was declassified by the British Ministry of Defense. Imagine what we have now. It's interesting. We also have, of course, a digital culture where people can look at these things. It's not always a help, but sometimes it is. Uh, it's much more persuasive to look at a a piece of video than it is to look at a grainy black and white photograph on the front page of a newspaper. And that's a factor as well in all of this. Um, it's, it's very interesting. You know, this question that we're discussing cuts across all political lines. It's one of the very few questions in our culture that does. And that too is probably abetting some kind of disclosure. And this is why I love this, this subject, because it, we can discuss this with somebody from the right or the left and it doesn't matter it seems that we can find common ground with this subject. But that brings me to Jacques Vallée, who says UFOs probably are some kind of interdimensional manifestations which enter our awareness intermittently and then vanish again. If we are to, uh, able to perceive within a certain spectrum, and according to Professor Michio Kaku, who says the multiverse has 11 dimensions, how can we apply the scientific method of observation, replication, and, and prediction without measuring with our own current equipment, Mitch? Well, it's interesting. That's why I, I'm detecting a convergence between UFO research and parapsychology or ESP research specifically. theory of interdimensionality, I find a persuasive concept. It's worthy of pursuit. And he... Uh, maybe wasn't entirely the first person to propose that idea, but he certainly proposed it in the fullest way in the late 1960s, early 70s. And that has become a dominant contender um, among theories of what's happening. You know, if one restricts the UFO question to the ET thesis versus the uh, interdimensional thesis, and there are other theses as well, such as unknown technology and so forth, that 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 warrant hearing but we have the problem with the et thesis is that if an object is traveling from some other part of the galaxy or some other part of uh, the universe as we know it the distances that would have to be covered are unfathomable they're literally unfathomable and difficult to even conceive of so we have certain theories, um, like cosmic wormholes, for example, that uh, postulate that maybe through the introduction of some exotic element, you could create the equivalent of a of a black hole where gravity collapses and time, space-time, as we call it, bends. And you can travel from one intersection of time to another in dramatic fashion. And then we have theories like string theory, which I referenced earlier. I think our conceptual models of interdimensionality are better developed than our conceptual models of possible ways to bend space-time and cover vast, vast distances. Neither of these things are reality. They're just concepts of reality where we're on our knees peeking through a keyhole trying to figure out what's going on. But I do think that that we as a human community have better models today of interdimensionality than of the capacity to travel at speeds that surpass light. So that's one of the reasons why I'm sympathetic to Jacques' thesis. And I think he's done so much to, to move the ball down the field in theorizing uh, about what's going on. The academic study of ESP is also helpful in this regard because it raises the question of whether the psyche itself is capable of traveling among different intersections of time. Earlier, I, I made reference to experiments in precognition at Cornell University that were conducted by a clinical psychologist named Daryl Bem. He published his results in a very mainstream jury psychology journal in 2011. And in short, Bem found that activities that you take in the so-called future can improve uh, performance in the so-called present. And I say so-called because we're witnessing what might be referred to as retro-causality. We're witnessing exceptions to linearity. And BEM statistical data has been rigorously 
meta-analyzed, pooled with other similar studies and been found confirmatory. And I write about this extensively in my book, Daydream Believer, uh, and elsewhere. And that raises the question of whether the psyche itself, under certain conditions or at certain times, is capable of receiving information or being affected by activities that go outside our common linear perspective. It's, it's part of the same conversation indirectly as string theory, and it's very exciting. So it could be that some of our capacity to take measurements, some of our capacity to at least statistically map out experiences that might be interdimensional in nature are abetted by academic ESP research. So that's one of the reasons why I really want to see that research occurring in a, in a better atmosphere of funding, in a more, I would say, well-developed atmosphere of intellectual inquiry, where people who raise these questions in academic settings are not hooted down or laughed down. Because all these considerations, I think, are starting to converge. And I think there have been experiments proving precognition and synchronicity. I mean, the, the what do you call it, the uh, eggs in the, the Princeton eggs with mm -hmm. uh, yes. random, random uh, numbers. Yes. So isn't there enough data to take this seriously? There is certainly enough data to take it seriously. We have statistical data as good as any that we possess that speak to the capacity of, of the mind to receive and transmit, so to speak, information in a way that goes beyond any known cognitive or technological function. The data is out there. It's been replicated, juried, meta-analyzed. It's proven bulletproof. We have statistical evidence for ESP that is as good as any statistical evidence that we've got. So there's either a flaw in our scientific model that we haven't come to terms with or the rejection of the evidence is simply anti-intellectualism. And uh, I've seen signs most of the latter. And that is a problem for inquiry. Uh, you can smash Galileo's telescope, but you can't make what you're seeing through it go away. And I, I think, as I said earlier, we've lost a lot of progress, at least a generation of progress probably in parapsychology. And uh, we have to do better. We as a culture have to do better. What do you think the forces are? What forces are curtailing or preventing parapsychology as, as uh, I hate to use the word pseudoscience because as you know, it, it sounds derogatory, but what forces are preventing this from becoming more mainstream and people who want to go to university and study this and have a major or a, or a master's or a doctorate degree on this? Well, they're cultural. Um, materialist philosophical materialism is a very powerful position, a kind of partisan position within uh, a lot of journalism, within a lot of academia, uh, within opinion shaping organs of uh, our society. As I said, as a media entity, the professional skeptic apparatus has been very successful. Uh, they've done uh, a very good job, unfortunately, of spiking Wikipedia pages, and um, that has an influence that reverberates across the culture. And there are people who might be writing on deadline, like a journalist, who are looking for a reference to ESP research or something like that, and they come up with what looks like an authoritative um, funeral algae for this, this data and they are being misinformed and they don't know they're being misinformed and there's not a, uh, a good many ways for them to find out they're being misinformed because the view is fairly widespread and emanates from a fairly respected places. So it does take some extraordinary actors within these places, whether it's a media source or whether it's a supervising editor at Wiki or something else to say, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, we're doing a bad job here. So the the suppression that we're experiencing, it seems to me, is of a cultural sort. And uh, it's very deeply entrenched. It's probably going to remain so for another generation. 
And I'm doing what I can uh, as a seeker, writer, historian to help um, uh, loosen loosen up uh, the tendrils of that problem. They're very, very serious. And I want to see ambitious, educated, impeccable young people who wish to study parapsychology uh, to feel the liberty to do so without risking their career and, and reputation. That would be a huge intellectual win for our culture. I have one more question before we take a break, and it's about your question. Why don't we see reality? I'd like you to explain that. But if our perception of reality is limited, if science can ever measure other dimensions, for example, is reality what we can perceive or does it include what we cannot perceive? It, it, it seems to me it has to include both. Um, we have certain devices that we use to get through the day. Linear time is one of them. I mean, linearity feels as real as the microphone in front of me that I'm speaking into right now. And we need it. It's necessary. If you say to me, well, Mitch, we're going to get together at such and such a time Eastern, I obviously have to be there. I can't say, well, gee, Mel, time isn't real. You know, we have to obey certain rules of the road. But those rules of the road are not all there is. Everything we've been discussing demonstrates, I hope, that there are aspects of reality that are as concrete as the floorboards under our feet, but that elude common observation. In the field of uh, quantum physics, this is sometimes called information leakage. Uh, students of physics have very rightly raised the question of why we witness this surreality on the particle level, although now it's becoming uh, 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 Quantum mechanics encompasses a body of data that goes beyond the particle level, but the classical experiments are restricted to subatomic particles. Why, students have rightly asked, are we seeing all this surreal behavior on the particle level, but I go down to the coffee shop and I'm obeying a whole different set of laws? And some theorists have reasoned that when we're measuring things with very fine instrumentation, we see more and more of what's going on, just as if you put a drop of water under a microscope. A drop of water in my hand is, well, what is it? It's translucent, it's wet, simple. But a drop of water under a microscope suddenly is teeming with single cell organisms, bacteria, different particles moving around, and all kinds of things are going on that are as real as the wetness that I feel but that I, with my coarsened senses, are not able to detect without instrumentation. And the theory is that if you pan back the camera, so to speak, you see less and less of what's really going on, which may be the position that we find ourselves in when we're navigating ordinary life. Now, William James, in his book, Varieties of Religious Experience, wrote precisely about all this in an age prior to the founding of quantum mechanics. And when quantum physicists talk about this problem of information leakage, they are actually echoing a concept that was voiced in different terms in James's book. He said specifically that the mystic sees everything as though underneath a microscope, sees more and more of what's really going on. We, with our course and senses and information overload, a problem presumably all the greater today, see less and less of what's going on. So some ESP theorists, for example, have attempted to determine whether there are certain conditions, like conditions of comfortable sensory deprivation, that might heighten the ESP effect. And that has been found to be a positive um, uh, correlation uh, to spiking the ESP effect in, in different experiments, including a series of experiments called the Gonsfeld experiments, which involves placing subjects into sensory deprivation conditions. So it may be that the noise the limited data intake that we experience in day-to-day -day life um, isn't aiding us in seeing everything that's going on. So obviously, uh, I think almost good sense, and certainly the data, dictate that uh, seeing reality is, is both a process of ordinary cognition and some kind of extra extraordinary cognition, whether eminent from the individual or by using very fine instrumentation. When we come back, we're going to get deeper into all of this. This is fascinating. We're going to talk about, about visualization and some of the research you've done about certain luminaries. I, I can think of one. It's not in your book, but one that I can think of is a name with the name of uh, an individual with the name Jose Silva of the Silva Method. You probably have heard about that. Of where course. He used to try to go to sleep with a metal ball in his hand on a sofa. 
And then when he fell asleep, the ball would fall out of his hand and then he would be in a half asleep, half awake state. And some of the things that he was able to do are incredible. But when we come back, we'll discuss hopefully this and some other items on your book. How can people buy Uncertain Places and all your other books, Mitch? Uncertain Places is available anywhere you buy your books, Amazon, brick and mortar store. It's uh, in digital, print, and audio, and I narrate the audio. Wonderful. One more hour to come with Mitch Horowitz. This is Mel Hoslerick, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Subscribe today. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share the video. Click on the notification button to be alerted when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know.